Section six of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section six. While the duke was thus employed, the Irish eyed his camp without daring to attack it. But within that camp soon appeared two evils more terrible than the foe—treason and pestilence. Among the best troops under his command were the French exiles. And now a grave doubt arose touching their fidelity. The real Huguenot refugee indeed might safely be trusted. The dislike with which the most zealous English Protestants regarded the House of Bourbon and the Church of Rome was a lukewarm feeling when compared with that indistinguishable hatred which glowed in the bosom of the persecuted, dragooned, expatriated Calvinist of Languedoc. The Irish had already remarked that the French heretic neither gave nor took quarter. Now, however, it was found that, with those emigrants who had sacrificed everything for the reformed religion, were intermingled emigrants of a very different sort, deserters who had run away from their standards in the low countries, and had coloured their crime by pretending that they were Protestants, and that their conscience would not suffer them to fight for the persecutor of their church. Some of these men, hoping that by a second treason they might obtain both pardon and reward, opened a correspondence with Avaux. The letters were intercepted, and a formidable plot was brought to light. It appeared that, if Schomberg had been weak enough to yield to the importunity of those who wished him to give battle, several French companies would, in the heat of the action, have fired on the English, and gone over to the enemy. Such a defection might well have produced a general panic in a better army than that which was encamped under Dundalk. It was necessary to be severe. Six of the conspirators were hanged. Two hundred of their accomplices were sent in irons to England. Even after this winnowing, the refugees were long regarded by the rest of the army with unjust but not unnatural suspicion. During some days, indeed, there was great reason to fear that the enemy would be entertained with a bloody fight between the English soldiers and their French allies. A few hours before the execution of the chief conspirators, a general muster of the army was held, and it was observed that the ranks of the English battalions looked thin. From the first day of the campaign there had been much sickness among the recruits, but it was not till the time of the equinox that the mortality became alarming. The autumnal rains of Ireland are usually heavy, and this year they were heavier than usual. The whole country was deluged, and the duke's camp became a marsh. The Inniskillen men were seasoned to the climate. The Dutch were accustomed to live in a country which, as a wit of that age said, draws fifty feet of water. They kept their huts dry and clean, and they had experienced and careful officers who did not suffer them to omit any precaution. But the peasants of Yorkshire and Derbyshire had neither constitutions prepared to resist the pernicious influence, nor skill to protect themselves against it. The bad provisions furnished by the commissariat aggravated the maladies generated by the air. Remedies were almost entirely wanting. The surgeons were few. The medicine chests contained little more than lint and plasters for wounds. The English sickened and died by hundreds. Even those who were not smitten by the pestilence were unnerved and dejected, and instead of putting forth the energy which is the heritage of our race, awaited their fate with the helpless apathy of Asiatics. 
It was in vain that Schomburg tried to teach them to improve their habitations, and to cover the wet earth on which they lay with a thick carpet of fern. Exertion had become more dreadful to them than death. It was not to be expected that men who would not help themselves should help each other. Nobody asked, and nobody showed compassion. Familiarity with ghastly spectacles produced a hard-heartedness and a desperate impiety, of which an example will not easily be found even in the history of infectious diseases. The moans of the sick were drowned by the blasphemy and ribaldry of their comrades. Sometimes, seated on the body of a wretch who had died in the morning, might be seen a wretch destined to die before night, cursing, singing loose songs, and swallowing Uzba to the health of the devil. When the corpses were taken away to be buried, the survivors grumbled. A dead man, they said, was a good screen and a good stool. Why, when there was so abundant a supply of such useful articles of furniture, were people to be exposed to the cold air and forced to crouch on the moist ground? Many of the sick were sent by the English vessels which lay off the coast to Belfast, where a great hospital had been prepared. But scarce half of them lived to the end of the voyage. More than one ship lay long in the Bay of Carrickfergus, heaped with carcasses, and exhaling the stench of death, without a living man on board. The Irish army suffered much less. The kern of Munster or Connaught was doon as well off in the camp as if he had been in his own mud cabin, inhaling the vapours of his own quagmire. He naturally exulted in the distress of the Saxon heretics, and flattered himself that they would be destroyed without a blow. He heard with delight the guns pealing all day over the graves of the English officers, till at length the funerals became too numerous to be celebrated with military pomp, and the mournful sounds were succeeded by a silence more mournful still. The superiority of force was now so decidedly on the side of James that he could safely venture to detach five regiments from his army, and to send them into Connaught. Sarsfield commanded them. He did not, indeed, stand so high as he deserved in the royal estimation. The king, with an air of intelligent superiority which must have made Avaux and Rosen bite their lips, pronounced him a brave fellow, but very scantily supplied with brains. It was not without great difficulty that the ambassador prevailed on his majesty to raise the best officer in the Irish army to the rank of brigadier. Sarsfield now fully vindicated the favourable opinion which his French patrons had formed of him. He dislodged the English from Sligo and he effectually secured Galway, which had been in considerable danger. No attack, however, was made on the English entrenchments before Dundalk. In the midst of difficulties and disasters hourly multiplying, the great qualities of Schomburg appeared hourly more and more conspicuous. Not in the full tide of success, not on the field of Mont's Clairos, not under the walls of Maastricht, had he so well deserved the admiration of mankind. His resolution never gave way. His prudence never slept. His temper, in spite of manifold vexations and provocations, was always cheerful and serene. The effective men under his command, even if all were reckoned as effective who were not stretched on the earth by fever, did not now exceed five thousand. These were hardly equal to their ordinary duty, and yet it was necessary to harass them with double duty. Nevertheless, so masterly were the old man's dispositions, that with this small force he faced during several weeks twenty thousand troops, who were accompanied by a multitude of armed banditti. At length, early in November, the Irish dispersed, and went to winter quarters. The Duke then broke up his camp and retired into Ulster. Just as the remains of his army were about to move, a rumour spread that the enemy was approaching in great force. Had this rumour been true, the danger would have been extreme. 
but the English regiments, though they had been reduced to a third part of their complement, and though the men who were in best health were hardly able to shoulder arms, showed a strange joy and alacrity at the prospect of battle, and swore that the papists should pay for all the misery of the last month. "'We English,' Schomberg said, identifying himself good-humouredly with the people of the country which had adopted him, "'we English have stomach enough for fighting. It is a pity that we are not as fond of some other parts of a soldier's business.' The alarm proved false. The Duke's army departed unmolested, but the highway along which he retired presented a piteous and hideous spectacle. A long train of wagons laden with the sick jolted over the rugged pavement. At every jolt some wretched man gave up the ghost. The corpse was flung out and left unburied to the foxes and crows. The whole number of those who died, in the camp at Dundalk, in the hospital at Belfast, on the road and on the sea, amounted to above six thousand. The survivors were quartered for the winter in the towns and villages of Ulster. The general fixed his headquarters at Lisburn. His conduct was variously judged. Wise and candid men said that he had surpassed himself, and that there was no other captain in Europe who, with raw troops, with ignorant officers, with scanty stores, having to contend at once against a hostile army of greatly superior force, against a villainous commissariat, against a nest of traitors in his own camp, and against a disease more murderous than the sword, would have brought the campaign to a close without the loss of a flag or a gun. On the other hand, many of those newly commissioned majors and captains, whose helplessness had increased all his perplexities, and who had not one qualification for their posts except personal courage, grumbled at the skill and patience which had saved them from destruction. Their complaints were echoed on the other side of St. George's Channel. Some of the murmuring, though unjust, was excusable. The parents, who had sent a gallant lad in his first uniform to fight his way to glory, might be pardoned if, when they learned that he had died on a wisp of straw without medical attendance, and had been buried in a swamp without any Christian or military ceremony, their affliction made them hasty and unreasonable. But with the cry of bereaved families was mingled another cry much less respectable. All the hearers and tellers of news abused the general who furnished them with so little news to hear and to tell. For men of that sort are so greedy after excitement that they far more readily forgive a commander who loses a battle than a commander who declines one. The politicians, who delivered their oracles from the thickest cloud of tobacco smoke at Garraway's, confidently asked, without knowing anything, either of war in general or of Irish war in particular, why Schomberg did not fight. They could not venture to say that he did not understand his calling. No doubt he had been an excellent officer, but he was very old. He seemed to bear his years well, but his faculties were not what they had been, his memory was failing, and it was well known that he sometimes forgot in the afternoon what he had done in the morning. It may be doubted whether there ever existed a human being whose mind was quite as firmly toned at eighty as at forty. But that Schomberg's intellectual powers had been little impaired by years is sufficiently proved by his dispatches, which are still extant, and which are models of official writing, terse, perspicuous, full of important facts and weighty reasons, compressed into the smallest possible number of words. In those dispatches he sometimes alluded, not angrily but with calm disdain, to the censures thrown upon his conduct by shallow babblers, who never having seen any military operation more important than the relieving of the guard at Whitehall, imagined that the easiest thing in the world was to gain great victories in any situation and against any odds, and by sturdy patriots, who were convinced that one English tartar or thresher, who had not yet learned how to load a gun or port a pike, 
was a match for any five musketeers of King Louis's household. Unsatisfactory as had been the results of the campaign in Ireland, the results of the maritime operations of the year were more unsatisfactory still. It had been confidently expected that, on the sea, England, allied with Holland, would have been far more than a match for the power of Lewis, but everything went wrong. Herbert had, after the unimportant skirmish of Bantry Bay, returned with his squadron to Portsmouth. There he found that he had not lost the good opinion either of the public or of the government. The House of Commons thanked him for his services, and he received signal marks of the favour of the Crown. He had not been at the coronation, and had therefore missed his share of the rewards which, at the time of that solemnity, had been distributed among the chief agents of the Revolution. The omission was now repaired, and he was created Earl of Torrington. The King went down to Portsmouth, dined on board of the Admiral's flagship, expressed the fullest confidence in the valour and loyalty of the Navy, knighted two gallant captains, Cloudsley Shovel and John Ashby, and ordered a donative to be divided among the seamen. We cannot justly blame William for having a high opinion of Torrington, for Torrington was generally regarded as one of the bravest and most skilful officers in the navy. He had been promoted to the rank of Rear Admiral of England by James, who, if he understood anything, understood maritime affairs. That place and other lucrative places Torrington had relinquished, when he found that he could retain them only by submitting to be a tool of the Jesuitical cabal. No man had taken a more active, a more hazardous, or a more useful part in effecting the revolution. It seemed, therefore, that no man had fairer pretensions to be put at the head of the naval administration. Yet no man could be more unfit for such a post. His morals had always been loose, so loose, indeed, that the firmness with which in the late reign he had adhered to his religion had excited much surprise. His glorious disgrace, indeed, seemed to have produced a salutary effect on his character. In poverty and exile he rose from a voluptuary into a hero. But as soon as prosperity returned, the hero sank again into a voluptuary, and the lapse was deep and hopeless. The nerves of his mind, which had been during a short time braced to a firm tone, were now so much relaxed by vice that he was utterly incapable of self-denial or of strenuous exertion. The vulgar courage of a foremast man he still retained. But both as admiral and as first lord of the admiralty he was utterly inefficient. Month after month the fleet, which should have been the terror of the seas, lay in harbour while he was diverting himself in London. The sailors, punning upon his new title, gave him the name of Lord Terry in town. When he came on shipboard he was accompanied by a bevy of courtesans. There was scarcely an hour of the day or of the night when he was not under the influence of claret. Being insatiable of pleasure, he necessarily became insatiable of wealth. Yet he loved flattery almost as much as either wealth or pleasure. He had long been in the habit of exacting the most abject homage from those who were under his command. His flagship was a little Versailles. He expected his captains to attend him in his cabin when he went to bed, and to assemble every morning at his levee. He even suffered them to dress him. One of them combed his flowing wig, another stood ready with the embroidered coat. Under such a chief there could be no discipline. His tars passed their time in rioting among the rabble of Portsmouth. Those officers who won his favour by servility and adulation easily obtained leave of absence, and spent weeks in London, revelling in taverns, scouring the streets, or making love to the masked ladies in the pit of the theatre. 
The victuallers soon found out with whom they had to deal, and sent down to the fleet casks of meat which dogs would not touch, and barrels of beer which smelt worse than bilge-water. Meanwhile, the British Channel seemed to be abandoned to French rovers. Our merchantmen were boarded in sight of the ramparts of Plymouth. The sugar-fleet from the West Indies lost seven ships. The whole value of the prizes taken by the cruisers of the enemy in the immediate neighborhood of our island, while Torrington was engaged with his bottle and his harem, was estimated at six hundred thousand pounds. So difficult was it to obtain the convoy of a man-of-war, except by giving immense bribes, that our traders were forced to hire the services of Dutch privateers, and found these foreign mercenaries much more useful and much less greedy than the officers of our own royal navy. The only department with which no fault could be found was the Department of Foreign Affairs. There William was his own minister, and where he was his own minister there were no delays, no blunders, no jobs, no treasons. The difficulties with which he had to contend were indeed great. Even at The Hague he had to encounter an opposition which all his wisdom and firmness could, with the strenuous support of Hansius, scarcely overcome. The English were not aware that, while they were murmuring at their sovereign's partiality for the land of his birth, a strong party in Holland was murmuring at his partiality for the land of his adoption. The Dutch ambassadors at Westminster complained that the terms of alliance which he proposed were derogatory to the dignity and prejudicial to the interests of the Republic, that wherever the honor of the English flag was concerned, he was punctilious and obstinate, that he peremptorily insisted on an article which interdicted all trade with France, and which could not be but grievously felt on the exchange of Amsterdam, that when they expressed a hope that the Navigation Act would be repealed, he burst out laughing, and told them that the thing was not to be thought of. He carried all his points, and a solemn contract was made by which the English and the Batavian Federation bound themselves to stand firmly by each other against France, and not to make peace except by mutual consent." but one of the Dutch plenipotentiaries declared that he was afraid of being one day held to obloquy as a traitor, for conceding so much, and the signature of another plainly appeared to have been traced by a hand shaking with emotion. End of section 6